The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. The Dow slumping nearly 500 points after stronger than expected data from the United States. Stokes fears the Federal Reserve may continue hiking into what potentially could be a recession next year. Tesla shares reversed despite denying reports it's planning to slash its Model Y production at its Shanghai factory after reporting record Chinese sales in November. Beijing officials continue to ease COVID restrictions amid a report China could announce 10 new easing measures as soon as tomorrow after last month's historic demonstrations. Italy's finance minister adds to the chorus of calls for a European response to America's Inflation Reduction Act. While Germany's finance minister tells CNBC the legislation should provide a catalyst for the EU. I think there is room for improvement when it comes to, to state aid. We have to foster our European competitiveness and um, I think the Inflation Reduction Act of the US is the opportunity, the invitation uh, to reconsider our competitiveness. Okay, let's mix it up a little bit. I'm going to do things the opposite way around from what I normally do because I want to make a point. And, and I'll start off with the Asian indices, which, quite frankly, they're interesting. We've got the Kospi down 1%. We've got the Hang Seng down by a similar margin. Nikkei, uh, mildly in positive territory. Shanghai Composite flat as well. Uh, the point I want to make is a little bit later on. So let's have a look at the Treasuries as well, first of all, and see where they are trading at the moment. 3.59. So the yield picking up a little bit. That's part of the story that Jeff gave you from the ISM data uh, in the head. Headlines. And I'll take a look at the US dollar crosses as well. Again, I guess the dollar's on the front foot, given the fact that the 10-year is also picking up on the yield. And we know that the dollar index put on 0.7 of 1% yesterday, hence the pound. Oh, God, that's annoying, isn't it? Flirting with flat, green and red. <laughs> don't see that very often anyway 121 that it's flat uh, the euro dollar uh, also just losing a little bit of steam in the last 24 hours as well let's get straight to the u.s markets because i want to talk about combinations and i'm colorblind i, I don't mind telling you guys which means you'll be pleased and i could have never been a fighter pilot or something they won't let you if you're colorblind but i've worn some pretty bad combos in my time um dare i say it, a green tie with an orange and blue striped shirt didn't realize that i got home bad combo good combo though when i wore my gucci ensemble in the 90s black tie black shirt all very matrix it looked great at the time but what i'm talking about is combos here and why am i talking about combos well because what's a good combo for the market to rally what's a bad combo i.e combination for the market to down tick and i think we saw it yesterday and i don't think it's just about the ism services data it was fine there was nothing stark about the ism services it was okay there certainly wasn't 500 points off on the Dow about it as well. I think we had a combination of the top down 
bottom up just didn't look right. And I'll explain a little bit more what I mean in a moment, but I'll first of all take a look at the technology stock. But just think about combinations that get the market to a certain destination. So the tech stocks across the board fell. Tesla, this one is pretty much uh, about concerns about the Shanghai factory as well and what was going on there. Their sales force isn't on there. That one fell as well. That was about another CEO, uh, the uh, boss of Slack leaving the group a couple of years after the acquisition. But as you can see across the board, the market didn't like the combination it saw. And the combination I don't think that the market likes at the moment, and I'll do it with this company that I'm going to show you now. I don't think the market likes top-down data which is fairly strong or solid and bottom-up data that actually tells the truth about what's happening in the economy and the US consumer. And this company, VF Corp, is the great, great example of that as well. VF Corp, you might be like a lot of people out there going, who? I know. Have a look what this company does. It is North Face. It is Timberland. It is Vans. It is Eastpac. It is a whole host of brands. Thank you, producers. That's great. It, I don't even know who Supreme is, but it's a whole host of brands that you know. They're lifestyle brands, isn't it? They're brands that if you think you're slightly sporty, you want to wear something sporty-ish, but don't want to go the full Nike Adidas way, you might wear some of those brands as well. And the numbers from them yesterday were disappointing. You had a CEO stepping down, you had guidance cut, you had lower revenues, and you had this line from the company, which I think added to the combination of the market that people didn't like. And the line, Jeff and Karen, was weaker than anticipated consumer demand. So here's the problem. When you get top-down data, which is solid, which endorses the fact that the Fed is continuing to raise rates, but you get bottom-up, i.e. the companies everyone wants to buy, these kind of companies, they're related to the consumer, they'll be fine, telling you that there are earnings problems out there. I think that is the worst combination for the market. Not quite as bad as my green tie and orange and blue striped shirt, though. Well, that's pretty bad. I must be honest. The, the beauty of colour blinds, you can but, wear what you like. Yeah, absolutely. Unless it's Christmas. Absolutely. Unless it's a perfect combination. Um, yeah, no, I, I, look, I'm difficult to disagree with you because um, you, you've, got a, you've got a timing issue here, effectively. That, that's what's going on. And all parts, you know, all the cogs, it's like a gearbox. All the cogs move at different speeds but they work in unison and that's the gearbox. With the economy, all the cogs are working at different speeds, but it is the economy. But what it's exposing to you are areas of vulnerability within the economy and areas where there is still a bucket of strength. And so the overall macro data, as you're pointing out, as is coming through in some of the data, is clearly suggesting that the Fed needs to keep the pedal firmly down when it comes to hiking interest rates. Unfortunately, um, the uh, oil in your gearbox, effectively, your oil in the economy, is the transactions that take place between entities, whether those are consumers and banks or non-banks and consumers, retailers and consumers. That is the oil, effectively, that lubricates the economy. And ultimately, if the oil is um, draining out of the bottom of the sump, what you've got what is a gearbox today? that's going to lock up. So if those transactions are not taking place, if consumers are starting to pull in their horns and spend less, at some point you will have problems elsewhere in the economy. The trouble is 
by the time it shows up in the macro data, we're already toast. We're already in the recession the and the myth. Fed will be too late. They want the myth that the top-down data can be easier, but actually companies can weather it without seeing any ramifications on their top and bottom line. The mechanics of the consumer, I think, is what we're talking about here. And overall, if you think about some of the individual stock names, they are going to be hit. We have seen some layoffs. We've seen higher interest rates impacting the mortgage side and any other personal loan that some consumers have. But, you know, what have we heard so far? That there is a transition. Some consumers are spending less on everyday goods. They're spending more on very high-end purchases that they can still afford. Or the very opposite end, they're cutting back on anything discretionary and spending it more on the staples. So I think you've got a consumer reacting in very different ways. Well, and the other the money coming from? Well, the other point is that the services side, we've still got this long pandemic behaviour to deal with. If you look at the services number yesterday, that was the wild card for markets that the services came through well and truly above that 50 level at 56.5. I mean, where did that come from if we're going into a slower economy? For me, that was the wild card number. And if you look at what the markets have been doing, you mentioned the Gucci tie, the signaling function here with the big G's. So the market has been G'd up. They've been banking the fact that they've got some sort of pause coming from the Fed. But the data just did not reinforce that story yesterday, hence the fairly violent shakeout and sectors. Coming back to my gears analogy, uh, I don't think necessarily though the consumer is the part of the gearbox that we need to worry about. Increasingly it seems to me the concerns are being expressed in other areas and we were talking about this uh, Bank of International Settlements report overnight where they've basically come out and said and said we think there is potentially 80 trillion dollars worth of dollar swap related debt in the system uh, it is very difficult to um, actually clarify that because a lot of it is off balance sheet and not very well documented. But the exposure is between the banks and other non-bank entities. And some of that will have gone to the consumer. Some of it will be used by, I guess, um, uh, pension funds who are wanting to buy assets in dollars and they want to do it using right. dollar related swaps yeah. so it's basically just a warning from the BIS because what they're telling you is that there is a mountain of dollar related swap debt out there and we don't know how this story gets resolved and it could be as we were discussing I know derivatives your old stomping ground it could be that this nets out with no serious consequences or it could be that actually because, and I'll pick up a, a MAN report on this, um, MAN has been talking about this MAN, the hedge fund listed in the UK, they've been talking about hedge fund returns through November. But in the note, they also talk about concerns around spillover valuations of less liquid assets into public assets. And so you've got private equity and private debt investments that have not had a valuation reset yet because the owners of those assets are not required to do that. And they are not publicly listed, so we don't see them. But ultimately, this is part of a process where ultra-low interest rates resulted in financial and non-financial entities over-leveraging to try and increase returns. And so they've tried to do things at scale to generate returns to make up for the fact that obviously you couldn't make any money just by parking cash in the yield curve or in a deposit account. So you've now got a situation where there is concern around valuations on infrastructure and property assets that all are buried within pension funds and other, uh, within other institutions 
maybe a lot of those things were actually bought with the dollar swap debt that the BIS is now warning about. So we're beginning to see perhaps it, it, it's a little bit like when the tide goes out and you start to see the rocks emerging on the beach and you think well I'm glad I didn't swim over there because I would have got cut well, to that's ribbons. That's a nicer analogy than the man who actually turns out not to be wearing shorts when the tide well, goes out. Well I agree with that. And I believe that's more Buffett than you were going it's on. It's very yeah. 2007, 2008 isn't it that you saw very boring returns from companies was just not acceptable unless you had some sort of supersized return then forget about it and I think if we had the pandemic trends that we looked at in recent years where companies got these supersized revenues and profits you had technology companies with those sorts of huge returns as well if you were left behind I think a lot of companies were stretching for ways to get better returns a lot of banks as well other institutions yeah. and I think that uh, unusual environment has pushed people to take on more risk than they would but we're back to more normal conditions now and you think the PepsiCo story even overnight that uh, uh, hundreds of jobs are going to go. They're talking about efficiency gains here. This is obviously a business that's been through many, many cycles. And you know, why is a company that produces uh, soft drink and snacks having to cut back so aggressively going into a downturn? Well, it's just part of the cycle, isn't it? It's not that people are going to consume less uh, or consume fewer soft drinks into this cycle, but uh, the cost of capital has changed even for them. So they're going to have to find efficiencies. Automation. I think is the answer and it's the bit that nobody wants to talk about at the moment but there will be a lot of companies who are replacing jobs at the end of this year with machines and um, they will continue to generate the same turnover. I don't think people's consumption of fizzy drinks is dropping. No. I mean, I wish it would, That's perhaps. actually, isn't it? Because we, we like know that some of those sweet carbonated drinks are also adding to the, 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 the weight issues and well, let's not open the, the other door. health let's issues. Let's not open the Pandora's um, box. So, so maybe that wouldn't chin. be such a bad <laughs> thing here. when you say that. But, um, <laughs> but ultimately, I think the, 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 the grubby secret that no one's talking about perhaps is the fact that automation and industrialization is removing those jobs which is perhaps um, why we are going to see thousands more go before the years are. And why sweeteners are probably worse for you if you're trying to lose weight than sugar. But anyway I just went there. I knew, I knew you would say the word sugar at some point. Uh -huh. No, we should have that conversation as well before we wrap up and before we go into the festive binge that we're all Speak looking forward to. Really? I might just have a little bit of a snack now. We'll yeah, you help yourself. Karen's got chocolate on set. Delicious. Um, uh, well, let me read this bit and you can have a chomp on your chocolate. Uh, a relaxing of China's strict zero COVID policies could be announced as soon as Wednesday. Sources speaking with Reuters say the new nationwide rules would allow a more coordinated coordinated and widespread reopening across the country. It comes as local officials have started to cut back on lockdowns following last month's historic protests, with Shanghai confirming it would no longer require COVID testing for people to enter public spaces. Beijing has also announced it will no longer require people to show a negative COVID test before entering supermarkets and offices starting today. The shift comes as top officials softened their tone on the severity of the virus, helping fuel optimism of a broader reopening of the world's second largest economy. Let's get out to Sam, who's got more on this uh, for us and, uh, and perhaps some, some detail on the overall weakness we're seeing in some of the Chinese data. Sam, good morning. 
Good morning to you, Jeff, Stephen, Karen. Well, that's right. Of course, we have seen China continuing to ease these COVID curbs as really adhering to the 20 measures that they announced a few weeks ago uh, as they try to relax uh, some of these uh, more uh, arbitrary measures that have uh, fueled a lot of the anger that we saw uh, when we saw those protests, of course. And so uh, what we have seen uh, today certainly is uh, Beijing uh, announcing that they would be allowing people to enter places like supermarkets and office buildings without uh, a negative PCR test. They still do need to carry out a test and show a negative reading to go into things like gyms and schools, bars, cafes and elderly care facilities, etc. But uh, this is really being seen as a positive small step in the right direction because, of course, we've got to remember and put this in perspective and context that this this testing is really rigorous in China and uh, you do need to show a negative test. Uh, it is connected to your ID card uh, and then it shows up on your health code app to enter something like a supermarket. So uh, this is a policy which has put a lot of Chinese citizens out. Uh, of course, it's been hugely disruptive and, and inconvenient, uh, certainly for their daily lives in order to just go down and go to the grocery store. So this has been uh, really seen as a positive step. Investors like what they're hearing. That has certainly helped uh, fuel a lot of the optimism we've seen actually on the Chinese markets today uh, when it does come to uh, areas like consumer staple stocks, uh, the liquor stocks, uh, and also tourism and gaming. So those are the sectors that are really helping lift the CSI 300 index today. Uh, it does come off the back of our other announcements that we've heard of uh, places like Shenzhen and Shanghai also uh, rolling back, dialing back some of their testing requirements as well. So we are certainly seeing this uh, in the major cities uh, and no doubt this is a, a good sign because this has been hugely costly for, for local economies as well. Uh, also, also from the perspective of uh, the services sector and the scarring uh, certainly in that area of the economy because you only had to look at the Taishin services PMI out yesterday uh, for clues to see that that is now at a six month low as we we have certainly seen, uh, of course, uh, areas like bars and restaurants, etc., being impacted by this, and, and the jobless, uh, the shedding of those um, those positions have also been uh, the fastest we've seen since uh, early in the 2000s. So that is certainly a, a bit of a concern. But what I would say is, um, while they have been more targeted, localized, and precise measures, uh, they are still relatively scattered, and that is why we continue to see this sort of caution uh, in the market. Of course, investors very closely watching how China will get over the winter months now and also how the, the economy will pick up off the back of some of this easing that we have seen. Guys, back to you. Sam, thank you very much for that. To pick up and talk about Tesla's story, and there were question marks in recent days about the demand story and whether that could meet a response on the supply side from Tesla. But Tesla has denied it plans to reduce output at its Shanghai factory, telling Reuters the media reports are, quote, untrue and false news. Multiple reports cited the carmaker would cut uh, production of its Model Y vehicle in December, that is despite record sales in China last month. Tesla has uh, shares it have closed lower on the news. You can see, look at that, 6% uh, south at this point. Well, Apple is reportedly looking to expand its footprint in India, according to CNBC sources. The Cupertino giant is now considering moving some production of its iPads to the subcontinent. It comes after Apple announced earlier this year it had begun assembling its flagship iPhone 14 in southern India as it actively looks to shift production out of China to other countries in Asia. Uh, still to come on the program, Italy calls for a united response as Brussels looks to mitigate the threat posed by the US Inflation Reduction Act. We'll have more from our team on the ground when we come back. And just a reminder, for more on China's partial climb down from its strict COVID curbs, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. I was going to start reading this read, but I want you to take a step back, ladies and gentlemen, before you listen to this, because this is Italy, right? This is Italy with a far-right government. This is Italy with a fascist government, apparently. There is there going to be a new uh, enfant terrible, a problem child of Europe, mm. right? Now listen to this. This is Italy, right? Okay, that was going to rip apart coordination in Brussels. Italy has called for a unified European approach to support competitiveness in the bloc in response to the new US Inflation Reduction Act. This after the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced that the EU would modify its state aid rules in order to help European industries cushion the blow of domestic US subsidies. The United States and the European Union have agreed to intensify talks to resolve EU concerns over the Inflation Reduction Act following a joint meeting of the Trade and Technology Council, never heard of that one, TNTC, in Washington on Monday. Uh, Sylvia joins us now from Brussels. Sylvia, before you get into the story, this is, um, this is not the Italy I was told to expect from this new government. Sounds to me, and I've spoken to a lot of Italian businessmen in the last week as well, who are actually kind of, dare I say it, and I'll whisper this, quite impressed with the Italian government so far. Well, when it comes to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and the concerns that the Europeans have about this legislation, this is actually widespread across Europe. Whether you look at Italy, France, Germany, they're all concerned about these subsidies that the American administration has put together to support car manufacturers building electric vehicles from North America. That's very important to keep in mind because that's the piece of legislation that the Europeans have issue with. They are concerned that this is actually threatening European companies. And it was within this context, and you mentioned just moments ago, that Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, suggested over the weekend that what the EU should do about this is also to step up its subsidies to European car manufacturers. But what we're seeing now is a new dialogue within the 27 member states. Because these remarks from the European Commission president were received with some skepticism, in particular in key European capitals. Let me show you what the finance minister for Germany, Christian Lindner, had to say about this yesterday when he arrived here in Brussels. We have to be uh, more agile. Um, and I think there is room for improvement when it comes to, to state aid. We have to foster our European competitiveness, and um, I think the Inflation Reduction Act of the U.S. is the opportunity, the invitation uh, to reconsider our competitiveness. There are some parts of Ursula von der Leyen's initiative which need to be further uh, debated, um, uh, especially her proposal of a, a European sovereignty fund. Uh, if that means a kind of rebranding um, of existing tools, I'm open for discussion. If sovereignty fund uh, means new common European debt, then I think this would not be an improvement of our competitiveness or stability. It would be a threat for competitiveness and stability. 
the German finance minister there telling me that if what Ursula von der Leyen meant was to raise new money, then forget it. That what he is supportive of is using existing European funds to support the European industry. And he is not alone in sharing this opinion. The president of the Eurogroup, Pascal Donahue, also told me that using taxpayers' money might not be the best way to actually support European car makers. We all hope, member states, the Commission, that this kind of engagement has the effect that we want. Cooperation with the United States and many other areas between the US and the EU couldn't be stronger, which is why the effect of this particular economic policy within America and what it can mean for Europe is really, really serious for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we do want dialogue, we want engagement, we want cooperation to yield benefits, to diffuse and to diminish this issue. But then, of course, Europe will have to consider if we need to take action to protect our economy and to protect our jobs um, in light of this development. Some member states have already said that what they favour is actually using current European funds to support European industry rather than coming up with further subsidies. What do you have to say to these member states? So these are exactly the kind of issues that will need consideration. It goes without saying that it is a lose-lose if we were all using the taxpayers' money in different parts of the world to compete with each other. Uh, but I really hope we can get to a point that that kind of scenario is avoided because what we want to do instead is uh, support investment in those parts of our economy that really will matter in the future to deal with climate change, to deal with moving to a more secure world. But obviously to avoid doing that in which friends and partners are competing with each other at the cost of the taxpayer and at the cost of jobs. So what we are witnessing is the start of a new debate within the EU on how to support its businesses, its economy, essentially against the American competitiveness. And having said that, also important to monitor what happens between European and American officials in this regard. We had that key meeting happening yesterday in uh, over stateside, and they did say that there is willingness to adapt the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act to take into consideration some of the concerns raised by the Europeans. So that's the focus in the short term and of course in the medium term it's looking at how the EU might indeed support its businesses in this regard. Sylvia, thank you very much for bringing us the latest story there. The United States and European Union have agreed to cooperate on averting potential semiconductor supply chain shortages. In a statement following Monday's Trade and Technology Council meeting in Washington, the two sides pledged to implement an early warning system to address potential disruptions in the chip space, adding they would look to expand the program to, quote, like-minded countries in an apparent slight towards China. The U.S. decision to attract critical technology and infrastructure manufacturing to its shores while loosening ties to China has left Europe's tech leaders in a tenuous position. Arjun joins us with more. Arjun, it is fascinating. We're just looking at uh, some of the moves to build a plant in Arizona by TSMC. 
and effectively they're even citing there the cost of building is much higher. We can probably put that as a one-off if there's some funding from the government as well. The other point though is operationally they're saying they don't necessarily have the expertise on the ground. That suggests a massive barrier to entry. Yeah, it's, it's extremely difficult. The, the cost of investment is huge, billions of dollars and also the talent. Uh, it's all based in Taiwan when it comes to manufacturing the most advanced ships, which is really what the US is after. And the US policy uh, sort of falls into, into two, in a two-pronged kind of attack here. Firstly, one is about trying to attract uh, chip makers like TSMC, like Samsung to the US to manufacture the most advanced chips on US shores. But the second part of that policy is also about holding China's own chip development back. And in both those positions, what you see is uh, the European Union and European com countries, uh, companies even, really caught in the middle of that uh, as well. And if we look at one company in particular, one country in particular, ASML in the Netherlands, that's really a, a key uh, for what we're seeing about rising tensions between the European Union and the US when it comes to chip policy because ASML makes these machines called ultra, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines. These are really required to print the most intricate parts of a chip and that's what's allowing uh, companies like Apple and others to be able to, to put the most advanced chips in their smartphones for example as well. Now this is the only company in the world able to do this and this is really key uh, if China wants to advance to the level that you've seen Taiwan and South Korea and chip manufacturing they need this machine. However since around 2018 under the presidency of Donald Trump you've seen pressure on the Netherlands uh, to not allow ASML to export that machine to China uh, and in 2019, they effectively uh, withdrew a license for ASML to, withdraw, to uh, send that machine to China and they haven't been able to ship it since. And that's really a big reason why China hasn't been able to catch up with uh, the likes of TSMC in Taiwan and Samsung in South Korea when it comes to manufacturing the most advanced ships. But in both those cases, what you're seeing, uh, one is the US competing with the EU for funding uh, in terms of attracting those companies. But secondly, also uh, in trying to hamper China's own progress, European companies are caught in the middle. It sounds like we're just scratching the surface on the story that the low end, the high end, we are going to see an impact here right across the board on chips. But Dutch, and you're going to join us later and we'll try and get into a bit more detail on that. You can find out how much the Dutch semiconductor production giant TSML is uh, effectively now caught in the middle of a US-China uh, chips crunch by reading Arjun's latest piece on CNBC.com. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.